issues of property. And what about the economy? What is ownership? Is this appropriate? Goods. Properties. Commodification. Ownership. Property. Hello, everybody, and a very warm welcome to Appropriate, the podcast of the Collaborative Research Center Structural Change of Property. I'm Charlotte, and today's episode is the first of a three-part mini-series called Global Commons and Their Discontents. This series will be hosted by Alexandra Eresmann. She works in the Junior Research Project 1, The Transformation of Global Commons and the Future of Planetary Ecosystems. She will give an introduction to the topic of global commons and then introduce the first expert, Daniel Lambach. So, go ahead, Alexandra. Thanks, Charlotta. This podcast miniseries is the result of a workshop of the same name, Global Commons and Their Discontents, which was organized by our research team in September 2022. In our project, we focus on global commons, historically defined as areas beyond national jurisdiction, but more recently understood as vital natural resource domains and ecosystems that are the unfortunate subject of overuse and depletion. In light of current and future global environmental devastation, the concept of the global commons has also been used as an alternative vision for the progressive management of these global spaces and resources where they're conserved and shared equitably. Despite this shift, however, the study of global commons is generally limited to the study of international law and regimes, with a few other interdisciplinary contributions including Eleanor Ostrom's theory on the management of common pool resources, global justice discussions on distribution and natural resources, and the role of territorial and property rights in remote and uninhabited areas. Yet we still seem to lack a theoretical framework for global commons, especially one that enables the articulation of both critical and normative perspectives on natural resources and the regimes of their use in global commons. To explore how this theoretical gap could begin to be filled, we invited experts from around the world to our workshop to share and discuss how critical and normative political theory reflect on global commons discourse, and whether there is a conceptual framework available to address the critical state of and the aspirations for global commons. This podcast series aims to present the discussions and findings of this workshop and its contributions to this quest for a theory on the global commons. In the first episode of this series, we hear from Dr. Daniel Lambach, a political scientist currently working as a Heisenberg Fellow at the Research Center Normative Orders at Goethe Universität Frankfurt. Lambach provides a helpful introduction to the topic of the global commons by discussing and describing the forms of territorialization of various global commons over space and time, and further considers what this means for the future of global commons management and use. Links to his recent related publications, including the functional territorialization of the high seas, as well as technology and the construction of oceanic space, bathymetry, and the Arctic continental shelf dispute, can be found in the podcast description. Now let's hear from Daniel Lambach. The talk I'm giving today is based on a paper that I wrote with Carlo Diel a year ago, which was published uh, in the Zeitschrift für Internationale Beziehungen. Since not everybody here reads German, I feel kind of justified in, in going over sort of the, the most important bits of it, but I will also draw on a few other pieces of work. It's basically an interim result from a comparative analysis of governance dynamics of different global commons from a political science perspective. Now, the main interest for me there were the spatial forms of global commons govern, governance. So how do regimes construct the global commons in a spatial sense? 
And the project started from the observation that the international community has several different spatial instruments at its disposal and uses them somewhat unevenly. So I basically distinguished three models or variants or instruments of, of global commons governance from a spatial perspective. The first is sovereign territorialization. So the transformation of a global commons into sovereign territory through uh, techniques of enclosure, which is basically what uh, you know many economists following Garrett Hardin and others are advocating for, you know, privatization, parcelization of the oceans into national slices to manage the resources therein, allocate private property, and so on. The second is what we call in the paper non-territorialization, although we might also call it internationalization. I've since come around to maybe this is a more appropriate term. So it's the uh, creation of a supranational authority to govern a particular global commons. So kind of reminiscent of the, the more Marxist answers that, that shared resources require centralized oversight rather than uh, private propertization. Now, then there's a third type, which I think we came up with, although it, it, others might might also lay claim to that, which we call functional territorialization, meaning the creation of spaces where states have certain prerogatives and certain duties that are short of full sovereignty, uh, usually on the basis of an international regime. And my, my personal case in point would be search and rescue regions uh, on the oceans. They extend way beyond territorial spaces. They extend beyond exclusive economic zones. They assign certain responsibilities to coastal states, uh, but they also assign certain rights and they are governed by international treaties. The crucial bit about functional territorialization is that it's generally compatible with the global commons remaining a global commons. And I think this is a crucial bit uh, regarding the governance of these spaces. The first question that the project was supposed to answer is why do regimes select different spatial instruments, which are the criteria uh, which determine one of these three outcomes for a specific space? And my hunch was that this has something to do with the international environment in terms of power balances, in terms of prevailing global norms. More on that later when I come to sort of what we learned from all that. And these are the cases uh, we looked at. So five global commons, which we call domains, the oceans, the poles, the seabed, airspace, and outer space, including the moon. Now, we define global commons more in terms of their spatial character as areas beyond national jurisdiction, less in terms of shared resources. They are that too, of course, but I'm more interested in resources that can be tangibly located on a map rather than their more abstract property in terms of usability. And one upshot is of that is that when we're looking at the atmosphere, we're looking at it in terms of airspace, not in terms of atmospheric quality of climate of pollution. So basically the opposite of what Surabi Ranganathan approached the atmosphere earlier today. Because my point is that airspace was a global commons until uh, the early 1900s. And that's also why we did not look at other kinds of global commons like the radio wave spectrum or genetic resources or whatever you can, whatever other example you could come with, because they're very difficult to, to spatialize. Okay, so for each domain, we try to identify cases where different spatial instruments were chosen. And you're probably familiar with most of these, but I will, I will talk about some of them a little later. I must sort of put in brackets, the Arctic as a case really doesn't work. Uh, the question was how, how each of these regimes came about and why certain solutions were preferred over others. And then 
through a comparison, we try to identify certain patterns and sort of make a larger historical argument about the trajectory of global commons governance. Right, so this is the first question. So why do regimes choose different spatial forms and what are the criteria which determine the outcomes? There was sort of a follow-up second question, can we discern any kind of evolution over time? So a trend towards or away from one of these models. We were sort of brought it to think about that by Rüdiger Wolfrum uh, and his, his book, Die Internationalisierung Staatsfreier Räume, which was written in 1984. And he seemed to kind of expect more internationalized spaces. I think he was very much uh, impressed by UNCLOS and the International Seabed Authority and also the development of space law. I think these were the examples he mainly referred to. And he sort of saw that as a model for future kinds of global commons governance. And we're not really convinced by that. So our argument would be that we are witnessing a trend towards functional territorialization instead, and that this trend was already visible back in 1984. But maybe I'll, I'll be able to convince you of that. So I want to, to work through a few examples from three domains to illustrate this argument and then present a few sort of tentative thoughts what we can learn from the comparison. The first example would be the oceans. So this is a map of today's extent of the high seas beyond exclusive economic zones. And, you know, the historical development is very well known with notions of the Mare Clausum, the closed seas, building on instruments like the Treaty of Tordesillas, which sort of institutionalized Portuguese and Spanish spheres of influence. So these were, in, in, in my typology, this would have been an attempt at creating sovereign territories on the high seas, which these nations were then unable to enforce as other European seafaring powers emerged. So from the Dutch-Portuguese dispute about access to Southeast Asia, we get Hugo Grotius' treatise on, on the Mare Liberum in 1608, which then became state practice over the next several centuries. And again, Zurabi mentioned how in its very earliest iterations, this notion of freedom of the seas also included areas up to the beach. This was somewhat attenuated by states beginning to claim coastal waters as part of their territory. That, that also has a longer tradition. I think Anders Osthagen somewhere wrote that this goes back for more than a thousand years, um, making sovereign claims over coastal waters. But, you know, by the 18th or 19th century, we have this sort of standard practice of the three-mile limit of territorial claim, often attributed to the cannon shot rule, which is probably a myth. And this practice was stable until the 20th century. And then we see the emergence of unilateral claims for expansion to 12 miles, to 24 miles, to 200 miles from the mid-1920s onwards, especially after 1945. Why did that happen then? My, my reading is that it's mainly about the globalization and industrialization of fisheries, a growing awareness of ecological risks, especially fears of a collapse of fish stocks. And so coastal nations wanted to protect their local fisheries and traditional fishing areas, but they didn't have any kind of legal instrument which would help them do that. So the main problem was that many states did not actually want sovereign territory extending this far into the oceans, and they were certainly unable to control it anyway. But there was no other way of expressing interests in these kind of oceanic nearshore resources. And this problem was not resolved during the first UN conference on the law of the sea in 1958. It was resolved, the third UNCLOS, in 1982, which on the one hand expanded the territorial sea out to 12 nautical miles, so created the sovereign territory there. And it also created the exclusive economic zone up to 200 miles as a sort of compromise, a functional territory, 
with limited sovereign rights over resources based on an international treaty, which delegated sort of the management and the stewardship of this area to individual states over these parts uh, of the global commons. And we could basically tell a similar tale about the seabed, uh, just where the continental shelf replaces the EEZ. But, you know, there, there are some differences regarding, you know, how the uh, International Seabed Authority is more clearly internationalized or has, has more clearly internationalized the governance of the seabed compared to the high seas under UNCLOS. Uh, but that's, uh, that's a minor point. Now, the second example is airspace. Historically, airspace was completely unregulated. So it was generally thought that it belonged to no one or maybe possession extended from the ground upwards without limit, possibly extending into outer space, which and either of these was clearly untenable and unenforceable. But governing the air became a priority once people were able to access this space. So we have the first gliders in 1890, we have motorized aircraft in the 1900s. And Louis Blériot from, from 1909 uh, crossing the, the channel from France to the UK in a motor aircraft, I think the first channel crossing of this kind. At the same time, we have the development of airships. So the first Zeppelin model was developed in 1900 uh, precisely. And this quickly raised questions such as, are these aircraft allowed to fly anywhere and everywhere? And what are the security implications? So we're looking at Europe in the pre-World War I period where we had a, a period of escalating tensions between major powers. And there were widespread fears that this new technology might be used for military purposes, which was true as it later turned out. So in 1910, we have the first uh, International Air Navigation Conference in Paris, which was attended by representatives of 18 European states. And this was sort of the first time where we have two competing positions that were elaborated. The first was elaborated by Germany and France, especially as those nations which were particularly leading in aircraft technology. And they argued for a freedom of the skies, very much inspired by freedom of the seas, which everyone was familiar with. The opposite position was elaborated by Great Britain, which saw its island status and the security this provided as being threatened by unlimited air traffic. So uh, Great Britain argued that air should be considered an extension of the territory underneath it. The conference ended without agreement, but it did set out these competing doctrines which would shape future discussions. In 1911, so a year after that, Great Britain unilaterally created the Aerial Navigation Act and proclaimed sovereignty over British airspace. Then we have World War I, where airships and aircraft were used for the first time for bombing runs, for aerial surveillance. So all these security-related fears uh, over this new technology proved to be true. And these experience, as well as sort of a developing field of civilian air traffic, led to the 1919 Paris Convention relating to the regulation of aerial navigation, the negotiations for which occurred alongside the Versailles Peace Conference. And this convention agreed on certain key principles the first was that each nation has absolute sovereignty over the airspace overlying its territories and waters. Secondly, aircraft must be registered to a state. And thirdly, however, states should not discriminate between their own aircraft and foreign aircraft when it comes to the application of national laws. So very broadly, we have a sovereign territorialization of, of airspace with certain limitations, sort of akin to the right of innocent passage for, for civilian aircraft. Again, very similar to, to practices on the oceans. And this policy shift was down to, on the one hand, the defeat of Germany as one of the major holdouts against this kind of territorialization. 
And secondly, a softening of the British position. So Britain now saw the possibilities of civilian air traffic for commercial purposes, but also to help, its, help it manage its empire. So we have a system of sovereign airspace. And there were a few pursuant treaties which followed these principles, like the Pan-American Convention in 1928. And all of this culminated uh, in the Chicago Convention on International Civil uh, Aviation in 1944, which is still the cornerstone of today's regime of civilian air traffic. Uh, the Chicago Convention enshrined state sovereignty over airspace above national territory. So we have this division of sovereign airspace and a non-territorialized international airspace. However, that left certain governance gaps. So if uh, internationalized airspace belongs to no one, how do we manage air traffic there? And for that, we saw the emergence of several functional territories. The first would be so-called air defense identification zones uh, and on the upper map. These are not based on a convention. This is, I think, the one singular example of a functional territory not based on a convention, which we found, I think, but based on unilateral declarations. And it, these are areas that states claim the prerogative to demand that aircraft flying through these areas identify themselves to that nation's control towers for defense purposes. They're a bit inconsistently applied. So I think only about 50 nations claim these zones. But due to their unilateral nature, the, the boundary drawing is a bit off. So sometimes you have these overlapping claims, like in this example between Japan and China, where both countries claim this uh, overlapping area for, for both of their air defense identification zones. The second example at the bottom are flight information regions. So this is where the International Civil Aviation Organization, which was created by the Chicago Convention, assigns responsibilities to nations to regulate traffic in particular areas uh, outside of national airspace. So these are two examples of, of functional territories sort of plugging uh, governance holes, so, so functional in a very, very uh, literal sense. Now, finally, space, final frontier. So much like airspace, outer space was unregulated as long as it was unusable. Then we have Sputnik in 1957, and then outer space law quickly emerged. The United Nations sets up COPWAS, the, the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space in 1959. Then we have the famous five treaties, the Outer Space Treaty, the Rescue Agreement, the Liability Convention, the Registration Convention, and the Moon Agreement, which together with a handful of resolutions still form the entirety of space law. Most of it created within two decades of the launch of the first satellite and heavily drawing on antecedents in, in air law and the law of the sea. Now, the core principle of the Outer Space Treaty is that the exploration of space and all celestial bodies, and I quote, shall be the province of all mankind in Article 1. And also outer space and all celestial bodies are, quote, not subject to national appropriation by claim of sovereignty, Article 2. So the Outer Space Treaty very clearly lays the groundwork for a regime which explicitly excludes sovereign territorialization. Within that framework, we do see some differences, though, between different orbits. So we have the geostationary orbit. So we're looking at distances of about 36,000 kilometers above the equator. And low Earth orbit, which I think is defined as something between 200 and 2,000 kilometers above the Earth's surface. This is from the, the ITU, which is sort of the entity that's kind of governing the use of the geostationary orbit. The problem with the geo is that 
there's a limited number of, of orbital slots, as they call it, um, so that satellites don't interfere with each other. And this needs to be governed in some way. And, and the ITU very early came up uh, with a system for doing that, leading to a functional territorialization of this orbit, which was not uncontested. As Rabi referenced the Bogota de Declaration in 1976, so there have been discussions about whether this is a fair and equitable system. Now, low Earth orbit has no such system. It remains non-territorialized despite mounting pressures due to overuse and space debris. So we're seeing a clear tragedy of the commons developing here that requires some kind of, of governance of a non-territorialized space. So we're probably looking at cooperative governance of the Eleanor Ostrom type as a suitable way out. Okay, so what's our thinking now that we've looked at all these cases? The first is kind of obvious. So the commons remain unregulated as long as no one has access to them. But once technology emerges that makes access possible, that makes use possible, and that makes exploitation possible, there's a strong push towards regulation. In these processes, we see a lot of learning by analogy, a lot of uh, cross-domain learning from, from established bodies of law. We also see that great powers like unregulated domains. So the classic example is Great Britain fighting tooth and nail to, to prevent a formalization of the law of the sea as long as Great Britain was the dominant maritime power in the 19th century. More specifically, we also see a major normative change in the immediate period after the Second World War. The Chicago Convention of 1944 was the last instance of sovereign territorialization that created a genuinely new kind of territory, national airspace. And this drew on earlier conventions, which did the same in a more limited fashion. And we find no other examples after that. The singular exception, maybe, is the expansion of the territorial sea in Unclos in 1982. But this was also sort of the culmination of, of a 50-year discussion. And it was only an expansion of an existing spatial instrument, not the creation of a new one. So um, I would argue that this is a bit of a special case. We do see several cases of non-territorialization or internationalization in the Outer Space Treaty uh, and the seabed regime in UNCLOS. And we see lots of instances of functional territorialization in the post-World War II period. And our sense is that this has replaced sovereign territorialization of the global commons. The global commons are no longer being carved up into national slices, but they are being sort of given to nations to govern within the context of a regime without full claims to sovereign authority. And just to, to illustrate how far this change has come, here's a timeline from a different paper of international agreements and instruments for ocean governance involving areas beyond national jurisdiction that use some kind of functional territorialization. I think I think I found 15 or 16 uh, of these for maritime governance, and they are used for different purposes there. You have those that are mainly created for the sustainable use of resources, such as region, regional fisheries bodies. You have conservation and environmental protection territories like whaling sanctuaries, and you have those for safety at sea, like uh, med areas or nav areas. Right, so finally, how do we account for this rise? functional territorialization. One possibility would be that, you know, this is just something that works. So we see policy diffusion, we see mutual learning from one regime to the other because it's considered to be successful. But I'm not exactly sure whether territorialized modes of governance are more effective than non-territorialized ones. There's, for a more specific example, we might look to marine spatial planning, 
where the effectiveness is sort of uncertain, but at the very least, um, you know, effectiveness is not the only point because I think territories also work even when they don't produce the desired governance output, but they do provide an illusion of order in disorderly environments, which are remote, which are inaccessible, where few or no people live. And I think that's down to three things. The first is sort of a cultural shift towards the organization of nature. We might look to the notion of legibility here, which James Scott very famously elaborated in his discussion of state building. So making nature legible to us through spatial organization, I think is a very important motivator here. Just it's happening on a planetary and extra planetary scale. The second uh, in economic terms are capitalist logics of resource accumulation. They depend on legal certainty and territories help provide that. So we have clear jurisdictions, we have a clarity of property rights and uh, resource extraction companies like that. And thirdly, in a political sense, these functional territories can be leveraged to legitimize other forms of territorial claims and for area control more generally. So extrapolating from that, I think we might see a more intense political competition over global commons, especially as the Anthropocene advances and as commercial exploitability, technological accessibility improve. But I don't really see a revival of sovereign territorialization. But over the last 10 years, there were several books and articles, you know, usually with titles like The Great Game, uh, Gold Rush, uh, the, the Scramble for, written about the Antarctic, about outer space, about whatever. And I can't help but think, well, I don't buy that. I don't, I don't see them, these spaces being carved up into national spaces, but I'd I'm, I'm thinking we're probably seeing more functional territorialization of the global commons continuing. So the global commons are not being carved up, but the nature of the commons will change because some states will enjoy privileges and certain rights in certain parts of these global commons. So my long-term prediction would be that we will see an evolution towards a global patchwork of overlapping functional territories governing these areas beyond national jurisdiction. And that's all. Thank you very much. Thank you to Daniel Lambach for his insightful contributions to the workshop and this podcast. We heard a great overview of three different global commons domains, the oceans, airspace, and outer space, as well as three types of spatial models used in the territorialization process of these domains. Lombach also identified several trends over time related to global commons and the forms of territorialization. First, commons remain spatially unregulated until they become technologically accessible. Second, great powers tend to prefer unregulated and non-territorialized domains because it allows them to take advantage of their strength and wealth. Finally, there has been a shift from sovereign territorialization to a rise in functional territorialization. Looking to the future, Lombach expects to see more intense disputes over these territories, but he does not foresee a return to sovereign territorialization, so a functional territorialization is most likely. He also expects a global patchwork of different laws and regulations of the global commons going forward. These trends and future predictions are helpful for understanding the current state of global commons and what the future could look like. Thank you very much, Alexandra, for hosting this really interesting episode. And thank you for listening. If you liked it, follow this podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. You can also visit our website or follow us on Twitter. And don't forget to tune in to the next episodes of our mini-series. Have a nice day and until next time. Appropriate.
Diese Podcast-Reihe entsteht im Rahmen des Sonderforschungsbereichs Transregio 294 Strukturwandel des Eigentums und wird gefördert durch die Deutsche Forschungsgemeinschaft DFG unter der Fördernummer SFB TRR 294-1-424-638-267.